Welcome to Happy Hour with the Three Tomatoes. And no matter what time of the day you're listening, shouldn't every hour be happy? Cheers and enjoy the episode. David Merrick was one of the most intimidating men that was ever on Broadway. He was a scary producer for 30 years. Sometimes he fought with people. He uh, pulled the rug out of people. And he was really quite a force. Uh, and... Uh, I was so intimidated by him, and I tried very hard to avoid him because <laughs> I thought, well, you know, he was famous for firing people, and I was very, very afraid that I would do something, and he would look over to me and just go, you're fired. That's Josh Ellis talking about his early days as a publicist for legendary Broadway producer David Merrick. I'm Cheryl Benton, and what great fun I had talking to Josh about some of the legendary Broadway folks he's worked with. Listen in. The New York Post calls Joshua Ellis the maestro. He handled the press for some of Broadway's biggest hits, including more than a dozen Tony Award winners, and he's worked with a multitude of legendary personalities. It's a list that goes on and on, but it includes Yul Brenner, Carol Channing, David Merrick, Stephen Seinhardt, I'm Lauren Bacall, Gregory Peck, and so many more. And as you can imagine, he has stories, and he's turned some of those stories into a highly acclaimed solo show, Call My Publicist, the starry education of a Broadway press agent. So, Josh, welcome. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. I'm delighted to talk to you today. Hey, great. So I had a chance to see a reading of your show called My Publicist, and it's so wonderful. Congratulations. It hits all the marks. It's entertaining. It's funny. It's poignant. And you truly had a unique vantage point to the glamorous and, as you say, the often maddening world, too, of the great white way. So before you give us the lowdown, let's start with how did you become a Broadway publicist, and, and what exactly is the role of a publicist? David Merrick was one of the most intimidating men that was ever on Broadway. He was a scary producer for 30 years. Uh, people, sometimes he fought with people. He uh, pulled the rug out of people. Uh, I got into it because of uh, graduate school at Villanova University, and where our playwright in residence was David Rabe, uh, who wrote Dicks and Bones, among many other shows, Pablo Hummel. And uh, because of him, I got to meet Joseph Papp. Uh, when I, I did publicity for the theater department at Villanova, we did in one year one show that ended up on Broadway, one off-Broadway, one wow. off-Broadway at Cafe La Mama, and one on CBS Network Special. So it was not exactly the toughest job publicizing a theater that had shows that were going from Villanova to Broadway. Wow, that's uh, It it was a very easy link. And when I said, Joe Papp said, if you, you know, do you want to ever do this professionally, um, let me know. So uh, at a certain point I said, yes, that's really what I would love to do. I called him. He called he called his press agent, Bob Ullman. Bob Ullman said, I don't need anyone, but there's a woman named Ruth Cage, and I think you're perfect for her. I interviewed with Ruth Cage. She asked me one question, and I got the jobs. She had a very gruff voice, and she said, here is Joshua Ellis. <laughs> and, <laughs> and 
I said, I'm a 23-year-old artificial insemination donor who would like to be a Broadway press agent. <laughs> and she said, you're hired. <laughs> oh, I love it. So you've, you've handled, since that time, some of Broadway's biggest hits and showbiz legends. But let's start with the legendary David Merrick, who's Shows include Hello Dolly, Gypsy, 42nd Street. And um, I know you had a really special relationship and consider him a, him a mentor. So tell us a little, first maybe explain a little bit about why he is so important to Broadway for people who may not know. They may know his shows, but they may not know that much about David Merrick. And how you got to know him and how you got to become involved with so many of his shows and what that that mentorship meant to you. David Merrick was one of the most intimidating men that was ever on Broadway. He was a scary producer for 30 years. Uh, people, sometimes he fought with people. He uh, pulled the rug out of people. But he managed, okay, when, when we talk about the list that you just gave, remember he did the original Broadway productions of those shows. Yes. including Oliver and so forth. So all the growth processes of those shows happened under him. Hello, Dolly! didn't start where it ended. And it's one thing to produce a revival. It's very different to produce the original production because it's still very much in flux. And he was able to get what he needed out of his, cre his team to make Hello, Dolly! the show we know it today. Well, that's but a intimidation great, was high on his list. Uh, that that's a great point, though, about those shows, which I hadn't thought of, because they're all still alive and well today, and you know, constantly being you know revived. So, um, you know, I hadn't thought back to you know what the original uh, efforts must have been like. So. Right. I think it's also, and most many people don't understand that when you start working on a show, it's just a script. It's not, you know, and if it's a musical in those days, it was script and a cassette of the music. And that was pretty much it. It didn't have a logo. It didn't have a theme. It, I mean, it was totally a fluid thing, and the public never heard of it before. There was a time when you could say the name of a show, for example, I did Into the Woods, and no one ever heard of it. It was an empty slate. We created an image as the press team and then the marketing team of creating the image of what we wanted that show to be introduced to the public. And that's what our job is. It's really the link between the production and the public, and our vehicle is the press. So how did you get to know Merrick and get involved with his shows? And, okay. and why yeah. is he special to you personally? My very first Apprentice musical was called Mac and Mabel which brought together all the original team that had created Hello, Dolly, and it starred Robert Preston. And I was the press apprentice, which is, I guess, equivalent to the guy who goes out and get, gets everyone coffee. But, in fact, it was a David Merrick musical, and he was scarier in real life than I had ever, ever expected. And this was David wow. Merrick, the producer who used to be on The Tonight Show all the time, the very first time the Tony Words were broadcast, he was one of the presenters. And he was really quite a force. Uh, and uh, I was so intimidated by him, and I tried very hard to avoid him. 
because <laughs> I thought, well, you know, he was famous for firing people. And I was very, very afraid that I would do something, and he would look over to me and just go, you're fired. And that's how he got rid of people on shows. And when the cast sat down at the first day of rehearsal, um, he sat ne right next to me. And I was so intimidated. I thought, oh, my God. And they played a new song that Jerry Herman had just written to add to the show. And when the song was finished, Merrick said to me, oh, what do you think of the song? I thought, oh, my God, how do I answer this? It's, I said, Mr. Merrick, you produced Hello, Dolly, and Gypsy. I'm just a press apprentice. Why are you asking me? And he said, because I pay you. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm just, I'll tell him what I think. And I, I told him I liked the song a lot. And he didn't fire me, so I guess it was okay. So um, over the years, um, my the intimidation factor never went down, but I think that David Merrick and I ended up having a very kind of father son relationship. Uh, he was never very ever unkind to me. He never yelled at me. Um, and what I most loved was the fact that he gave me an enormous latitude to be able to have fun doing stuff on the show. His Modus operandi. Okay, and maybe you'll under, I'll give you the context. We worked on a show called The Baker's Wife, which was a gigantic David Merrick flop. And we were watching from the wings at the Kennedy Center. The audience was sparse. The show, one of the stars, it was Topol and Patty Lupone. And Merrick looked at me from the wing, in the wings and said, ooh, are we having fun? And I thought... <laughs> Having fun, it's such a, it's a, I mean, the critics hate it, the audience hate it, you know, um, are we having fun? And the answer was yes. And the fact is that it, it made such an important statement in my life. It's like, yes, it's, the purpose is to have fun. I mean, if we're not having fun, how are we going to get the audiences to have fun or enjoy, or if it's obviously if it's a drama, to be engaged in it? But uh, the idea of having fun, it's a wonderful idea. It's a great I philosophy. Lo I love that. So, Okay, his other philosophy, though, yes. is a little darker, okay? Yeah. It's not enough to succeed. All others must fail. Oh. Ooh. We got uh, yes. there. Uh, so I was going to ask you, you worked on so many of his shows, so I was going to ask you what was your favorite and what was the one you most enjoyed working on, because I don't know if that's the same, would be the same. Um, they were all adventures, and for lots of different reasons. Uh, I have to say all of them, and I know that that just sounds maybe Pollyannish, but even on the flops, he could be just in, – in, in, he was just challenging, and at the same time, his droll sense of humor would come out. Uh, we worked on a show called I Won't Dance, famous only because it was the very last show that ever played the old Helen Hayes Theater. And it was a terrible, terrible show, <laughs> right after 42nd Street. And we were supposed to do a photo call after the final dress rehearsal. And the dress rehearsal was over at... 9.45, and we had to leave the theater at quarter of 12 midnight. And the director was giving the cast notes, oh, long, and 
time passed and an hour passed and an hour and a half passed. And finally, with about 15 minutes to go, David Merrick says, it's all yours. And I said, how can you expect me to photograph an entire show in 15 minutes? And he said, it's longer than the show's going to run. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I can see why you enjoyed being around this, this legend. So the another question I wanted to I have so many questions. We could keep you on the phone for hours. But we, we're gonna to have to have you come back again with more of your great stories. But you know, I know that you've done you you pulled some interesting um PR stunts. Could you talk about what do you think's the most outrageous one you've ever done to get attention for a show? Okay, well the most outrageous one was the one that ended up getting tons of press attending, but it never got any press coverage. And that was because we were handling Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus at the same time that the International Strongman Contest was at what was then called the Felt Forum, which was also at Madison Square Garden. Yes, and yeah. we came up with a stunt that a strong man was going to lift a baby elephant. And uh, how do I say this in the nicest way possible? Uh, when the strong man tried to lift the baby elephant, the little baby elephant was scared because it was off its footing. Elephants like to know they're on firm ground. And the little baby elephant got severe diarrhea all <laughs> oh, no. over the strong man. So although we had five television crews and an enormous number of photographers, the video was absolutely unusable. Oh my gosh! So I could... When you say outrageous, I mean, you know, I mean, I hope that man lived to see another day. It was not pretty. Oh my gosh, that is very, very funny. So obviously, David Merrick was a key part of your Broadway education, but I know there were a lot of other big name stars that you worked with too. People like Yul Brenner to Gregory Peck, who you consider some of your Broadway professors as well, so to speak. So could you talk about some of your mentors and and what you learned from them? I would be delighted to. Um, Yul Brenner taught me life lessons that, again, it was like a father-son relationship. I messed up something so badly on The King and I that I had every reason to be fired, and uh, I was scared to death because getting fired was like the worst thing that could happen in the, I thought, in the theater. And um, I came into his dressing room basically to be dressed down. I knew that I had made a mistake. I was wrong. He was right. And I came into his dressing room and just said, I admit it. I, I made a mistake, and I'm sorry. And he taught me the lesson that admitting you do not know the answer is the beginning of knowledge. And it's not – the honor of a person is not faking the answer. It's being honest enough to say, I don't know, and then researching it and learning. And right. that's a really important life lesson that I learned in that moment and have stuck with ever since. If I don't know the answer to something, I just say, I don't know. The world does not end if I say, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's a hard lesson, though, because sometimes in, 
you can not be thrilled in a group of people to say, I don't know when everyone expects you to know. Right, there absolutely, and so many people not have knowing, not problems really I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, from Carol Channing, I learned uh, the art of being interviewed is that you answer the question you wish you were asked, not the question you were asked. Ah. The interviewer really only wants you to be interesting. They don't care if you're answering the question, and a lot of times, the interviewer just has a list of questions. So if you don't get to another question but you stay interesting, that's all that matters. So Carol, I mean, you, you could say anything to her, and she would, I mean, she would get back to talking about whatever show she was working on, and then she would be really charming and say things like, yes, and I'm doing, I'm doing Lorelei at the Palace Theater, uh, 47th and Broadway, 212 Plaza 70200. She would plug it so much. <laughs> And like the, the interviewer would be like, well, you're not really supposed to do that. But it was too late. It was already done. You know, she also taught me the great art of being in a group photograph. She always wanted to be in the picture on the far right as she was or on the far left as the camera looked at it. And she would fight for that position. And that was because when you identify a picture left to right, as all newspapers do, uh, the person on the left gets mentioned first. And wow. really fascinating. I never thought of that. Okay. <laughs> That's how you learn from the a pros. Very except if you're in a room with many pros, and they all know this, and they all fight to get to that side of the picture. And, oh, you know, my God. I'm going to have to while they kind of take oh, the other person funny. away from that position. So um, there's an art to it. Um, from Claudette Colbert, I learned attention to detail, the likes of which you only would get from a person who is in over a hundred movies. She understood more about lighting and photography. She was a an amazing mentor, she would know that when we did a photo shoot for a play called Aren't We All with Rex Harrison and, and Claudette, that she said the light was lighter on one side than the other. And the photographer, Martha Swope, took out her lighting meter and said, no, it's the same. And Claudette said, no, it's not. I'm, I promise you it's, it's lighter, you know, it's brighter on one, on, on one, one side. And Martha's assistant took out her, her her light meter, and it was, in fact, darker and lighter on one stage, exactly as Claudette said. And Martha Swope was like, who was the dean of theater photographers, said, how did you know Miss Colbert? And she said, my cheeks tell me. I've done enough movies where my cheeks tell me I don't need to ask. I just know. Wow. I mean, that's fascinating. Star. You know, so they, they – they, they get it on a level. And, I mean, just one other person. I mean, Lena Horne was an education in civil rights, uh, humanity. She was, she was not originally trusting of me. And I think that as I look back, I mean, would she have wanted a black press agent for Lena Horne, the lady in her music? And she would test me over and over, which I didn't realize at the time was testing. But she wanted to know where every critic was sitting to see her show. And I had a big blow-up of, of the uh, 
the seating chart and showed her. And I, eventually I found, like, why was she asking where everyone was sitting? And then it turned out that she told me that when she played the Cotton Club, black press was never invited to see an actual show. They were only invited to see dress rehearsals. So oh, my gosh. She was always conscious of the fact that the black press was treated not just differently, but badly. And it stuck. So she wanted to make sure that the black press got terrific seats. And she got it, the fact that the New York Times was going to get better seats than the Amsterdam News. But she didn't want the New York Times to be on row D and the Amsterdam News to be on row Q. Wow, that's and amazing. They, they, there's a, a, a background of the that people have, and you just listen, and they present it to you. Wow. And then, okay, this is a story I tell in the show, so I'll just be very brief about it. I, I used to play backstage in her dressing room. It was my favorite place to be. I just loved Lena's dressing room, especially since she got to the theater at 5 and the show didn't start till 8. So she'd be in her dressing room very casually getting ready for the evening performance. And one afternoon I walked in and she was talking to a slender black woman, and it was just two people talking. I mean, I thought nothing of it. And she said, Josh, I'd like you to meet Rosa Parks. And you go, oh, my God. Oh. You know, Ow. it's um, – I am meeting two people. I am in the presence of two people uh. who changed how we – Lena w- refused to play maids' roles in movies and changed Hollywood. And, of course, we don't have to explain what Rosa Parks did. Yeah. But they're oh, part I just, of history, oh, and you're right there in the room with them. Oh, wow. But it's so great that you were in the moment that you appreciated that, because sometimes we have to step back from those moments and say, oh, my gosh, I was in the room, but that you actually in the moment realized what you were in the company of some some great. In the moment, I was very present. When I left the dressing room, I was like in a whole other universe. It was like, did that really just happen? Yes. Because – it isn't everyday kind of thing. It is. What do you, let me ask you another question. I know that you, you know, t- we we hear a lot today about, you know, uh, theater people versus, you know, Hollywood people. And, and there used to seem to be a big distinction of, of that um, in Broadway. And now it seems like to carry a big Broadway show, you need a Hollywood kind of a name. And I know you've worked with people who've crossed over into both mediums. What What is your take on that? I think it's pretty wonderful that if a person from one medium wants to go into the other, provided that they have the skills to be able to do it. That is to say, if you do the theater, you have to be able to be heard beyond row three, so you yes. need the tools of working in the theater. You also have to have astonishing stamina. It's eight times a week. You go into it knowing it's eight times a week. If you don't have the strength to do it eight times a week, don't do it. I mean, don't come to Broadway just to show off. I mean, it's it's hard work. So if a person comes in and honors the theater, I think it's just great. Yeah. If they come because, like, this is like they're having a, a, a dip in their careers and, you know, it's like this, this, this is this is not a place to learn your craft. This is a place to show your craft. And so 
craftspersons. They have to know how to do it. Yes. They can't coast. You know, there are performances after opening night. There are performances when the audience is not excited. There are performances when it's rainy or snowy, and and you still have to deliver the goods. And yeah. I'm for people well, who yeah. know how to deliver hey. the goods. Perspective because we won't name names, but we've all seen some of these people who have been in shows who haven't learned the craft <laughs> and yes. don't have the stamina. So, from a press agent's point of view, there were, of that one, of, right? <laughs> there were a group of stars who said, I don't do publicity. And it made me crazy because, I, what do you think is going to get people to come? If your name is gigantic. <laughs> That's one thing, okay? If Barbara Streisand wants to do anything on Broadway, that's easy, okay? But if you're not Barbara Streisand, okay, let's, uh, let's, uh, if you're not selling out at every performance, you need to do publicity. It goes along with the job of doing your job on stage. There's a job off stage, too. And it's also like stars who, like, like Hugh Jackman gave wonderful interviews, and he gave his time to charities, so he was raising money, and he would sell his T-shirt right during the curtain call to raise money. He raised more money for Broadway Cares, Equity Fights, AIDS, so he wasn't just a star coming to Broadway. He was somebody who was making an impression on the theatrical community, and that's what matters. Yeah, he's a great he's a great great example. So let let's leave Broadway for a minute because we have a little more time, and I do want you to talk about this because I know that you were also the press ag- agent for the MGM film That's Entertainment, which I loved. That was one of my favorite movies ever, and I think you have a story about two of my favorites, Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. Yes. Okay. The Office of Soldiers and Rothkin handled the premiere of the movie, That's Entertainment. The very first one when there wasn't That's Entertainment Part 1, Part 2. This yeah. was just the very first one that had everyone in it. And for the week prior to, everyone was assigned stars. And they gave me Sid Charisse, and they said she was too easy. And since I had a reputation for working with more challenging stars, they gave me Donald O'Connor. It all builds up to opening night of the film. Okay, among the people in the audience were Jackie Onassis and her date, Jerome Robbins. Uh, All night, the only thing that the press wanted was a picture of Fred Astaire and and Gene Kelly together. And the party was at the Rainbow Room, and there was no time when the two of them were adjacent to one another. And it made us crazy Ugh. because every time we could find one, we couldn't find the other. And this one was deeply in a conversation with somebody. Okay. So I finally I, – I have to pee so badly that <laughs> I go, okay, look, I can't be on this, this Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire watch forever. I'm, I'll, let me just go to the bathroom, and then I'll deal with the rest of it. I go into the bathroom, and who are at the urinals? Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire. <laughs> and I go – Oh, my God, they're both together, and they're both at the urinal. 
So I, I, I think, okay, I'll wait till they're finished, and then I'll explain. And I say to them, they finish, I say, I'm the press agent of the show. Please, we just want a picture of the two of you together. It will take 30 seconds, but can you please stay in the bathroom till I tell my boss that I have you both in the bathroom, and he'll go around and he'll get all the photographers together. You can come out, we'll do the picture in 30 seconds, and you'll be on your way. Fine. I rush out of the bathroom. I tell <laughs> Sheldon Roskin, okay, I have them both in the bathroom. Get the TV crews, get everybody. We're going to do the picture right here in front of the men's room, slightly off so you don't see the word men's room on the door. So I run back in. I say, it'll be about a minute before we do it. And then Shelton knocked on the door and said, we're ready. And out they came. That is a great story. Oh, I love that. You have so many fantastic stories. We definitely have to get you back on for a part two podcast. So I know that eventually you left the business to do other things. I know you were in California for a number of years with the La Jolla Playhouse, and you're also an interfaith minister, and you've created your wonderful show, which has received great reviews. So you have a very rich and full life. But do you ever miss the business? Well, I think by doing my show, I don't really miss my the business because I'm explaining to people why it was wonderful at a glorious time. And it's not like I don't go to the theater, and it's not like right. I no longer have independent thought and criticism of what I see. Would I want to go back to the business today? Rarely when I see a show and I'll go, oh, my God, I would love to have done the publicity on that show because of either the quality of the show or whatever. I mean, certain shows attract me. But the the day-to-day of of what it was, and and I was very, I guess you could say, spoiled by the best. Um, Right. Well, you did work with the best, that's for sure. I mean, it's not like I had this vague notion of what the best was. Yes. I was there in the room. I got it. It It was fabulous. And I love telling the stories because... It makes other people – I do this show even with with, little, with high school kids, and you think, well, what do high school kids know from these people? And I go – I impersonate – the fact that I impersonate the people in the show makes me Yeah, which is I great. I explain to pe- them in the show who these people were. But at the, at the end of the show, what most surprises me is they come up with their iPhones, and all this like – are they on YouTube? Can I see them? Da, 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 da. And who was this person? And they, they are engaged enough to want to – I mean, to them, it's not real until they see it on YouTube. Yeah. And that's what <laughs> saves us. It's, oh, like, it's that not is, just it, them. Are you I going mean, to – do you have plans to do the show again? I hope, of I course, hope. Of course, yes. Oh, I mean, good. I'm, I'm working on certain aspects of it because I, I want to do something slightly different than the last time I did it. Okay. Well, um, tell us. We want to make sure to publicize that to all of our tomato friends out there because really everyone has to go and see it because it's great and you are terrific in it. And we, as I said, this just flew by, and I know you've got so many more stories. We need to get you back um, to tell us more, but I can't thank you enough for joining me today, and it's just been a delight.